Welcome to Two Bits, a production of the American Numismatic Association hosted by Mitch Sanders and Douglas Mudd. Today we'll be talking about the renaissance of U.S. coins. Yes, this is a very important topic and something that uh, people people think about a lot, uh, or at least think about the coins that were produced as part of this renaissance. And it's such an interesting story uh, that entire volumes have been written about it. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. Um, but it's a really great way to think about the intersection of art and technology and numismatics. And powerful men as well. We've got a situation where we've got presidents involved. We've got some of the most famous artists of the times involved. So from my standpoint, I think the, the historical background to this is as, as important and interesting as the coins themselves, uh, though they do provide a, a sharp break with the past and, and add a, a bit of extra flavor to the US coin series for at least another five decades, so. Right, and it all came together in a, in a pretty compact period of time. Like the, we're basically talking about coins introduced from 1907 to 1921, uh, when basically all US coins were redesigned in the context of what's now been called the Renaissance of American coinage. But you know what, a, a question occurs to me now that we're talking about it, I've never, never thought about this before. Do you think it's fair to call it a renaissance of American coinage? Because the, the point of it was that American coinage, and this was the view of President Theodore Roosevelt, who's a major player in this, he thought American coins looked terrible. So it, it, it wasn't as if he was envisioning that we were returning to some earlier period of time when American coins were great. I don't think he thought there were any American coins that were great. He was really looking back to the ancient Greeks for inspiration. Certainly, Theodore Roosevelt was not at all impressed by U.S. coinage, and he was a great American patriot in the sense of, you know, he, he felt the country was great and deserved better than what, what it had in its money. And to that end, he worked very hard. Soon after he became president, uh, there were a lot of projects that he was working on that were designed to impress the world and our own citizenry on just what a great nation we were. Part of it was the Great White Fleet, sending the US Navy on a cruise all the way around the world, uh, which had never been done by the, the US Navy. Uh, we'd had individual ships that went on scientific voyages, but not a real um, wave the flag, uh, show the world that we have a Navy that can reach around the world. Um, he was a great patron of the arts. He knew a number of the great artists in painting, sculpture, and other fields. And he, he loved to entertain people of that sort, writers and artists. So he was really trying to create not only the impression, but the reality of a cultural mecca of the White House and Washington DC at the time. Part of this extended to coinage. It's a very natural extension, or not even extension. It's a very natural component of what he was trying to do, which is to project this modern and uh, 
appealing image. Uh, part of that can be sending a fleet around the world. Part of it can be building a canal. And a different kind of version of it can be the way the nation expresses itself through coinage. So, so back to the terminology, I guess the way I'm going to resolve it in my mind is that Theodore Roosevelt was envisioning a renaissance of coinage, i.e. going back to some of the elements that made ancient Greek coins so appealing, and we'll talk about that, a renaissance of coinage in an American context, rather than a renaissance of American coinage per se. That may be kind of nitpicking with the terminology, but I think it's to be helpful to think about in that way, because he wasn't trying to return American coinage to some terrific earlier state. He was trying to move American coinage in a direction that had previously been achieved uh, by the ancient Greeks with their high relief coins and, and other elements of artistic excellence, but a very natural uh, combination with all the other things he was trying to do um, with respect to uh, politics and international affairs and arts and culture. Yeah, he was a firm believer in American democracy and the fact that America really was the place where, you know, the Statue of Liberty had been around only for about, what, 20 years at that point. And we really were the place where the world's huddled masses could come to be free and earn a living and be safe compared to the rest of the world. And he, he wanted to, to show that democracy was real, was important, and was the wave of the future. And you have to remember, this is a world which was dominated by empires and mm -hmm. kingdoms uh, across the board, with the exception of the Americas. Uh, you're talking basically emperors and kings and queens. Uh, so it was not the, uh, the world we're familiar with today, where most countries claim to be democracies. Uh, you know, at that time, it was a very different situation. And he wanted to make sure to wave that flag and make sure that we were a beacon of freedom to the rest of the world. And part of that is you don't want it to look shabby. You want the, the appearance to be something great, something that you would be impressed by. And especially for that time and including to the modern day, Coins, money are some of the first things you see when you go to a country, the first things you learn about them, and that can create a, a very important first impression. Definitely. I think it was uh, the poet Yeats who called coins uh, silent ambassadors of national taste, and I always thought that was a nice description. Uh, he was talking about it in the context of uh, the redesign of Ireland coins when, when Ireland became independent in the 20th century, but it's something that applies universally. And then very momentously and auspiciously for this idea of, of coinage redesign, Roosevelt was friends with one of the most eminent artists uh, of that time, Augusta St. Gaudens. And it was that friendship, that collaboration that really launched the whole enterprise. Absolutely. And one of the things that I really find interesting about that is the way um, Theodore Roosevelt, should I call him Teddy or is that too close? <laughs> you know, I think anything goes after a century <laughs> later, anything goes. 
But uh, Teddy Roosevelt had a habit of meeting with people that he wanted to speak with, and to some extent, ex test, I think, of taking them outside of the White House and taking them on a walk into Rock Creek Park, which is right nearby. And the interesting thing is, he was a very energetic guy. He was very competitive. He was very proud of the fact that he'd overcome his own um, handicap to be able to be athletic and, and energetic. So he would take people on these energetic walks through Rock Creek Park, apparently at a very stiff pace to the point where several ambassadors, uh, ambassadors at the time, the stereotype would have been portly, to put it kindly. They spent a lot of time uh, at banquets and drinking quite a bit. And several of them made comments in their memoirs about almost having heart attacks as they tried to keep up as, as Teddy was carrying on a conversation, sometimes important, sometimes less important. But on one of these walks, he took Augusta St. Gaudens and as they were discussing uh, general things, art in the United States and the impression that uh, Roosevelt wanted to make on the rest of the world about the United States, uh, they got around to coinage and apparently Roosevelt had a Greek tetradram or Macedonian actually of Alexander the Great, which he pulled out of his pocket and said, why can't we do coins like this? These coins are impressive. They, they really tell you something about a country. We need something like this for the United States. And, and apparently Augustus St. Gaudens replied, well, we can do that. I can do that, but somebody has to get it past the mint. And in the course of the conversation, they made a pact apparently that suggested that Roosevelt would, would fight the bureaucrats and Augusta St. Gaudens would produce the coinage and they would have this new coinage worthy of a, of a great nation, which is how Roosevelt put it. And ultimately they accomplished their goal. There were a lot of twists and turns along the way, a lot of setbacks, and it was not, it was certainly not exactly the way it was originally envisioned um, that day uh, or beyond, but definitely uh, a huge improvement in, in a, a letter um, from President Roosevelt uh, to, I believe it was to his treasury secretary, he referred to American coinage as being of atrocious hideousness, which that's, um, that's my go-to insult now. <laughs> yes, it's a, yeah. atrociously it's hideous. Atrocious yeah. hideousness. Um, so let, let's talk about St. Gaudens for uh, a little bit because I'm a huge St. Gaudens fan um, to the point where I don't think I've ever told you this. Uh, I actually got married at his home. Um, his home and studio is um, it's a national historic park uh, in New Hampshire, and uh, it's his his home and there was another building that contains his uh, his studio. I mean, he he had a studio in New York City, but then he had this uh, uh, Cornish, New Hampshire home and studio as well. And the it's beautiful. The grounds are um, just the natural beauty is amazing. But then there are models and versions of 
most of his major works on the site there, um, based on the, the preliminary work that he was doing. There's plasters of, of the coins. It's just a, I mean, it's a great place to get married, but it's just a great place to visit uh, whenever anyone has the chance. Um, so uh, I've I had that as my wedding venue because I was already a big fan. And then this experience um, only consolidated that. But my sense, tell me if you, if you agree with this, my sense was that St. Gaudens around 1900. So, uh, you know, like 19, uh, in the very early years of the 20th century, when all this was going on, he was, he was pretty much a household name. I mean, he was a pretty famous artist. He was um, in a way that I don't know that there are any artists who are famous like that in, in today's world, you know, maybe like an Andy Warhol or someone when he was alive. But I always had the impression that St. Gaudens, like if you said St. Gaudens, people would, would know who you were talking about and and know his his work and, and his uh, his um, achievements in the artistic realm. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Saint Gaudens was really the first of the American artists to make an international impression, well beyond their own popularity within the United States. There were there were others that that were known in limited circles. Uh, Peel, the Peel family, some of their paintings and things were known. But he made an international impression among the French, among the British, uh, in a way that hadn't really been done by Americans. And he, he was amongst the first, if not the first, of a cohort of American artists that in the early 20th century would break out and put the United States on the map in terms of uh, European art connoisseurs, at least. And he was part of, he was part of a scene, uh, I don't know the other artists who were part of it, but in in Cornish, New Hampshire, that part of New Hampshire, he was not the only one to have uh, a home and studio in that area. So kind of a, a cluster. Um, I'll, I'll mention um, my three favorite works by Augusta St. Gaudens. And you can see if you uh, agree or disagree, if you want to add to the list, because he was known for his monumental sculpture. That was his, um, his claim to fame. I mean, he did he was actually originally a, a cameo cutter, so he worked on a very small scale, um, like coin size, which are kind of ironic given the difficulties that he later had getting the coins manufactured. But he originally worked uh, like so many coin engravers did at that small scale of cameo engraving, and he did uh, he did some a bunch of bas reliefs, so you know not sculpture in the round, but still with a significant three dimensional element. But I think he was best known for these. Uh, monuments all around the country. So my favorites, I'm going to go in chronological order. In Chicago, there's his uh, Lincoln the Man, Standing Lincoln with a chair behind him, which is a great representation of Lincoln. Uh, in 1891, there's the Adams Memorial, which is in Rock Creek um, Park, uh, Rock Creek Cemetery. Um, so not, not the park, but Rock Creek Cemetery. Um, so in a similar uh, geography in Washington, D.C., there's also a, a a model version of it in the Smithsonian American Art Museum, but that's a, a beautiful image that I always think of it as representing grief, but it's, I think it's more complicated than that, but um, it's in the cemetery. So it's part of the, part of this uh, memorial. And then probably the ultimate uh, St. Gaudens work, I think is the Sherman Monument, um, which uh, was uh, installed in 1903 in New York City on the uh, Southeast corner of Central Park. And it's this, beautiful uh, gilt statue. Sometimes the 
the gold leaf wears off and then it that that's uh not quite as appealing but it's a beautiful statue and and to look at the victory figure that's in front of the the, the equestrian image of general sherman you know to look at that figure you can see a lot of the inspiration for the coins that saint gaudens came up with so that's my quick top three uh saint gaudens uh tourism recommendations do you doug do you have anything to uh, add to the list or would you have a different order or anything else? There are many to choose from. Those are just my top three. I like all of the ones you mentioned. I've, I've seen them at least in photographs, but the Shaw Memorial is the one that I'm most impressed with because I really like how he handled the work. It's bar relief. It's related to numismatics in that sense. And you can see his, um, his skill with plasticity, you know, be able to take uh, figures and move them out of a flat surface and make them seem real, carries over into his great work of the uh, $20 St. Gaudens piece, where you can see that in the ultra high relief and to some extent in the, the high relief versions of it. Yeah, the Shaw Memorial, I mean, we could go pretty deep into the St. Gaudens uh, catalog and, you know, everything is Everything's really wonderful. Um, and that one, uh, one thing I, I like about the Shaw Memorial, the original is in Boston, um, right near the Boston State House, I think right across the street from it. But there's a, a model version of it in the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. So uh, that might be more convenient. Or uh, it's also nice that, um, like, over time, people have, you know, kind of vandalized the original, like, like fingers might be broken, anything that might be broken off uh, has been uh, broken off to some degree. But the one in the Smithsonian is is the uh, uh, the model and 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 therefore more pristine, although not in, not in its natural setting. So I know this is this isn't a tourism podcast, but since we're talking about St. Gaudens, you can you can go. You know, we've already talked about Washington D.C. and New York and Chicago and Boston, um, and there are beautiful examples of his work. You know, all around people. People walk by these um, memorials, some of them on an everyday basis, some of them are, are tucked away, um, but just indicative of, of the power of St. Gaudens artistry that, you know, all of these are over a hundred years old and they're still just amazing artistic monuments. Absolutely, the, the skill that he had was amazing and impressive. Uh, and, it, and it translated into his coinage Apparently, the part of the the plan was that they would revamp all of coin all of U.S. coinage at the time, but uh, unfortunately, Augustus St. Gardens didn't live to continue the plan beyond designing just the first two of the coins. Yeah, I know. You can only imagine what it would have been like an entire series of uh, every series of coins having been designed by St. Gardens, and then when this when this idea was being hatched, like 1905, the limitation was that coin designs had to be in place for at least 25 years. So the first coins to be eligible, therefore, were uh, the scent, where the Indian scent had been on, Indian design had been on since uh, since 1859, different reverse in 1860, but clearly met the 25-year threshold, uh, or uh, the gold coins, which had were still using. Uh, designs that were were decades old so those were first up for redesign 
Um, and there were some moves toward ascent, St. Gaudens sent, but with his deteriorating health and the effort involved in, in the gold coins, that ended up falling by the wayside. That's a later chapter in the Renaissance. So the effort pretty quickly became focused on the gold coins, specifically the, the $20 and the $10 gold piece. Right. And it, it would have been interesting, but I think in some ways it was somewhat fortuitous because uh, it enabled people like Victor David Brenner and Frazier and others to take part in this renaissance of U.S. coins and gave a variety and uh, depth to the coinage that might not have had otherwise. That's true. And uh, even though St. Gaudens didn't design those coins, he had certainly an influence on them, both with his style and also because many of the folks who went on to design his coins, like Frazier and Weinman, they had worked with St. Gaudens. So they were part of, part of this whole St. Gaudens uh, family tree, if you will. Um, and he, so he had influence even, even beyond what he was directly able to do. And, and I, to me, one of the most important things is that he, he was focused on that original idea of, of uh, emulating the Greeks with having these high relief, very impressive pieces. And his uh, successors did the same somewhat, not to the extent that he did with the $20 gold piece, but to a much greater extent than had ever been seen on U.S. coins. So you get the, the Buffalo nickel, the Mercury dime, you, you get these coins that had a greater sense of depth and a, in reality, greater depth. It's sort of interesting because I was involved in a, an attempt by Senator Byrd of the uh, Senate Banking Committee who in 2000 attempted to recreate the Renaissance of US coins for the, the 21st century where he pulled together a symposium that incorporated uh, major numismatic uh, figures of the time and also brought in the Smithsonian, which is where I came in, and the ANS uh, in order to, to discuss the design of US coins at the time and figure out a way for the mint to be encouraged to open up their designs to outsiders to add a, a more um, high art element to it. And in large part to increase the relief on the coins because mm -hmm. as with the end of the 19th century, the mint was focused on production and it's easier to produce low relief coins than it is to produce high relief right. coins. Yeah, that's the eternal dilemma of coin production, right? That you, the, the higher the relief, the more force is needed to strike the coins. And then the more, more force that's used, the more stress is put on the dies and the more dies you need. So uh, that's just a, a fundamental mathematical equation. And it's different, you know, when you're in ancient Athens and it's a guy, you know, banging with a hammer between two dies, you know, that's a different scenario than Ameri the United States Mint in 1900, which is a, obviously a mass production situation. And even that was different from the way things are now or the way things were in the year 2000. Mintages were 
large in 1900, but not nearly as large as they are now. So the, the same issues uh, will definitely keep occurring. But then thinking about technology and relief and back to the St. Gauden story. So a big part of the, uh, a big part of what made this possible, the whole Renaissance of American coinage or uh, Renaissance of coinage in American context, as I described it, was that there were technological advances um, at the Mint that then allowed the Mint to work with outside artists, right? Like it used to be, uh, you know, Charles Barber, um, George Morgan and their predecessors, they were doing things at coin size uh, when they were engraving. And that was, that was a certain skill. And, but then with the introduction of the Jean Vier reducing lathe, which had been around for a while, it wasn't newly invented at the time, but the, the Mint got one in the early 20th century, that then opened up the process to other artists who were not working at coin scale but someone like St. Gaudens who could do, you know, they, they could do a monument. So then when the Mint got this uh, Jean Vier reducing lathe, it allowed artists like St. Gaudens who were not accustomed to working at coin scale, they were working at monumental scale. They could then, instead of having to work at coin size, they could submit a plaster, uh, like 12 inches in diameter, which was something that, that they were able to do. But then the reducing lathe could bring it down to coin size and then uh, go into production. But of course that was not a straightforward process. It was, it was fairly new to the mint. And I think a lot of the story of the Renaissance of American coinage, uh, certainly in the early parts is everybody involved kind of figuring out how this process would work, like to create models that would reduce well for the artists. And then for the folks at the mint, the engraving department to figure out how to take those models and reduce them to coin size. And, the reason why there was so much uh, difficulty, especially with the St. Gauden pieces, really relates to uh, this challenge of, of taking these plaster models, uh, often in high, high relief, and getting them down to coin size and to a, a depth of relief that could be coined on the scale that would have been required. So a lot of it has to do with the, the striking process because transferring these high relief designs they had to figure out, okay, we've got the possibility of making them in such depth and plaster, they have to transfer into something that is workable on the striking presses, which were limited in that the power, they weren't used to using such high relief. So they had to adjust that. And part of that was the machinery itself. And then changing the norm of what they thought was possible with the coins. And I think there was an adjustment there that affected the double eagle quite a bit. So the technological learning curve meant that the very early versions, the earliest versions of the double eagle, ultra high relief, I don't know exactly how many, but at least 10 to 12, if not more strikings to get it to where it needed to be. Um, truly high relief, uh, ultra high relief, or extremely high relief goes by different terms. Whenever I see one of these coins, I have this vision, which is like you could pour water into it and drink out of it. It's that, it has that much relief. Now, just to be clear, one should never do this with, with, with any coin, but, but it, you know, like a, a regular production coin, it's inconceivable, but with these high relief coins, you could imagine it. Those were clearly not going to work. There was another iteration 
where um, the relief had been reduced, but still the coins required three strikes from a metal press actually to be produced. So also not feasible for, uh, for production. Um, and then another huge challenge was that before the second version was produced, St. Gaudens died. So he never really got, to, he never got to see his coins, even in the limited higher relief version. And it, it always creates I, a challenge because you, you wonder what he would have said. I mean, would there have been a, a battle royale to, to try to preserve the design or, or what? But as it was, it, it did open the way for the mint to produce something that was more acceptable from their terms and perhaps to the banking community as well. Yeah, they were eventually able to get to a, a reasonable solution. St. Gaudens had, had died by this time. Um, the sense I get from looking at the at the documentation is that I think I think everyone knew this was going to be a challenge. St. Gaudens knew this was going to be a challenge. Roosevelt really wanted high relief coins, um, and the ultra high reliefs were just not going to be feasible. Even the high reliefs, which were noticeably lower relief compared to the original. Even those were not going to be feasible, but there were enough of them made. There were like roughly 12,000 of these high relief versions made where it seemed like President Roosevelt, like he was satisfied with that. Even if that version was not going into full production, it was like they existed. He could show them to people. He sent some around with the fleet. He could give them to friends. They existed. And I, I think that kind of checked the box for him and then the project was able to continue in a bit of a different way. But another branch, you know, what might have been, St. Gaudens died even before these high relief versions were produced. So uh, if, if Roosevelt was satisfied and St. Gaudens was gone, there wasn't anybody left to really push for the original vision or anything closer to it. Uh, but you wonder what would have happened if, if St. Gaudens had lived. Maybe the two of them, Roosevelt and St. Gaudens, would have, you know, uh, prodded one another along and, and who knows where it would have ended up. But um, eventually they were able to get the, uh, the relief down to a more manageable level. Right. And uh, it would have been interesting to see because I think the final uh, low relief version could have been improved because it, it was still a beautiful coin, but it, it didn't have the majesty and impression that I think St. Gaudens would have settled for. So I wonder if there was some medium before between the high relief and the regular relief that that we ended up with for the next uh, twenty five years or whatever. Well, they had yeah, and also another reason to believe that there could have been a different version is that what the version that we ended up with was it was based on the high relief model, but the reducing lathes they they basically tried to make it as shallow as possible. It still didn't turn out all that great, so it had to be retouched. But you get the feeling that if, if someone had created a model or if they'd been able to use a model that was really created with low relief in mind, I think it, that probably would have been better than taking the adaptation uh, of what was a high relief model 
kind of dialing down the relief or the resolution that a high relief model that's then reduced in a low relief way, you know, that's not the greatest combination. So it needed some retouching by Barber in order to work out. Um, worked out pretty well, but I, you wonder if it could have been better. Right, and, and there, is, there are things that could have been done along the lines of what we've talked about with the Lincoln scent with a, the modern version looking like it has higher relief. And one of the ways that could have been done instead of using a, a flat field, a completely flat field, they could have cut the field a little bit to make it a little bit concave to give the impression of more relief and still get rid of some of the problems that they had with the high relief version, which was supposedly it didn't stack well and, and things like that. As it was, the overall impression is just of extreme flatness with the only parts that, that really give the impression of relief is the nose and the knee as he's moving forward out of the coin. Yeah, so yeah, and to do that would have had to go back to an earlier stage, um, mm -hmm. like a new, a new model, which was not feasible. So I, 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 think, I, think we'll, I think we agree about this, but I'll put it out there and, and we'll, we'll see. Um, the the St. Gaudens, even the production version, which requires only one strike, you know, consistent with the, the needs of the technology. Uh, I think that is the most beautiful American coin. Now you look at the high relief or the ultra high relief and you're like, wow, they're, you know, they're, like there could have been an even more impressive one. But I think even the version that exists, the nature of the artistry is such that I, I, to me, that's the pinnacle of American coin design. I would say coin design anywhere, uh, anytime. So I think Roosevelt and St. Gaudens accomplished their goal. But what do you think of the design well, I, as, as it was ultimately implemented? I would say that the high relief and the ultra high relief absolutely are, are stunning and they compare with the best of coinage anywhere in the world at any time. But the, the relief that we ended up with means that it's a, a, a beautiful coin, but it didn't live up to its potential because of what they did to the relief. And I think part of it is just what you said. It, it almost needed a redesign to make it work as a flat coin. I would say that uh, the Walking Liberty half, uh, which was higher relief and designed to be the relief that it ended up in, might edge the uh, double eagle as it ended up as far as the most beautiful of US coins to my thinking. I, I can't really muster that much of an objection to the walking Liberty half dollar. It is a beautiful coin and it, we'll talk about it later, uh, later in this series. It's, you know, it's, it's complicated because the, with the St. Gaudens double Eagle, I try not to hold against it. The fact that there was a version that could have been better. Uh, but still I end up doing that to, to some degree, knowing about it, uh, about what might've been, um, I would still give it an edge, and I know as, as disagreements go, this is not a, not no. a major one. Whether the St. Gaudens or Walking Liberty is the nicest coin, but that's that's why I'd, I'd give it the edge. I just I just think of it as you look at the Walking Liberty and the and the relief on the on the body there. There's you can see a bit of three dimensionality to it that could have been incorporated in the low relief version of the St. Gaudens Double Eagle, but because he wasn't there. 
it didn't happen. So it ends up looking like a a, a photocopy of well, yeah, art, you that's, know. that's a that's definitely a, a, a noticeable phenomenon with the St. Gaudens double eagle because even in the lower relief version, it still did not get fully struck in almost all instances. Like you right. mentioned the the face and the knee, uh, the parts of the design that are, are most indicative of kind of stepping forward or, or at least projecting into that dimensionality out of the coin. Uh, and, and also the, the, the hand, the fingers of the hand uh, grasping the torch, uh, those are often not well struck. I mean, they're typically not well struck at all. There's uh, right. uh, kind of, there's like a, uh, even on an uncirculated example, this is just about the strike, not anything about where, like from the nose to the lips is just like a, a vertical vertical line and the, and the fingers are kind of a blob. I spent, I spent most of one ANA convention just looking for a St. Gaudens double eagle with a you know pretty pretty good strike and it was elusive. I, like I might have found one or two, but uh, definitely elusive. So even even the version with lower aspirations doesn't fulfill all those aspirations. It just couldn't be struck fully. That's a, a known weakness, but uh, I still put it at number one. But that's definitely something that's noticeable about the coin. Well, it's a wonderful design, and I think the eagle translates into the flatter less uh, raised version better than the striding liberty you know that aspect of depth that you get from the original high relief and the ultra high relief is lost so much because she's striding out towards you and you need that depth to give that impression whereas the eagle which is extremely impressive in all three versions preserves more of its uh glory i guess you know it's design beauty in the low relief uh than the liberty does well yeah the double eagle is pretty unorthodox right the idea of a of a coin where you you have implied movement outside the coin you know most coins are are portraits and so that's the view that you're taking and it's it's easier to see um but i mean the walking liberty half dollar standing liberty quarter are, are doing similar things as well but that's that was pretty unorthodox and i think that's why it took an outside artist to uh introduce that innovation so you know it definitely has a a lofty aspiration just to change in a pretty fundamental way uh what a coin is capable of expressing with with that sense of motion it's interesting that it, it would take bringing in ideas with modern artists taken from ancient Greece 2,400 years before to break the conservative artistic uh, setting that had become the mint. And they did it so successfully by adding these ideas, adding the idea of motion. Uh, Some of this had, had started well before with the start of the U.S. Mint the first place, some of the uh, eagle designs that you see are derived from European ideas that were derived ultimately from ancient Greece and Rome. But with this renaissance of U.S. coinage, you start to see designs taken uh, very directly from 
in ancient coins. They were inspired by them and they alter them. Right. Uh, the eagles in particular, you, you start seeing eagles that appeared on ancient Egyptian coins, almost exactly the same pose. You see the flight, different forms of positioning of the eagle and the realism that appears on the eagle, which did not appear originally. They were either uh, scrawny turkeys, like the first yeah. eagles, or they were... Uh, like a heraldic eagle. Like yeah, holding, I was trying to think of... Or they were, yeah, or they were her heraldic eagles with a shield on them, which were also not considered to be realistic. They weren't intended to be realistic. Over the course of the 19th century, you start getting closer and closer to the idea of a natural eagle, a, a yeah. real eagle, but it really flowers at this turn of the century. And you, you start to see designs that, A, are very realistic impressions of eagles, but interestingly, they're also very derivative of eagles that had been used on coins 23, 2400 years before. Well, that's the that's the Renaissance that they were aiming for, right? To return to those uh, older styles and then update them uh, for a modern context and and for the United States and and uh, as much activity as there was with respect to uh, Saint Gaudens and his double eagle, that was really just the start of the process. There was Saint Gaudens eagle. There were other gold coins. All coins were redesigned. So uh, I feel like as much as we've discuss the St. Gaudens double eagle. There's a lot more to say about the renaissance of American coinage. And there's also a lot more uh, about the double eagle itself um, that we didn't really get into, but I'll, I'll make a, a plug here for uh, the, the wonderful volumes that uh, Roger Burdett wrote uh, earlier in this century, Renaissance of American coinage. That's the, the title um, of the series. And there are three volumes, uh, 1905 to 1908, 1909 to 1915, and 1916 to 1921. And we've talked about things that were happening in the first volume, but to, to read Roger's books, you really, it's almost like you're there and, and experiencing it as it happens because he relies on uh, archival sources. So you're seeing all the letters back and forth uh, from mint personnel, uh, all the difficulties, the, the challenges between chief engraver Charles Barber as he was trying to work with these models from outside artists and all the all the production difficulties. You know, he's often cast as a, a villain in numismatics. I think you get a more subtle story from Roger's book. So there's um, there's a, a lot more to the story, even as much as, we, as we've said about it here today. And I'm sure we'll talk about Barber and other things as we continue to talk about the Renaissance of American coinage. But I at least wanted to put in a plug for uh, Roger Burdett's uh, masterwork, uh, Renaissance of American Coinage, which is, if I were going to a desert island and I could pick, you know, three numismatic books, I would pick those three volumes. They're, they're really impressive. Yeah, they, they are really, truly masterworks. They're brilliantly researched and well-written. So they, they do make for good reading for a very complicated and prior to his, writing them obscure area of, of study for numismatics. Yeah, definitely recommend them, whether it's for your home library or for a, d a deserted island, if, you, if you're planning to find yourself there, definitely uh, reward close reading to, to see all the details. Um, 
but there's yeah definitely more to talk about about the renaissance but i think um those are things that we'll save for future episodes what do you think i think it's time we've had fun talking about the start of the renaissance and uh i look forward to looking at the next few coins that appeared some brilliant pieces that i personally enjoy quite a bit the Walking Liberty Half, we've talked about a little bit and a few other coins. Yes, a little bit of foreshadowing there for what we'll be talking about. Uh, so yes, the Renaissance, uh, a great start and definitely to be continued. So until then, uh, on behalf of, of Doug and myself, thanks to everyone for listening and we'll be back with you next time.